At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, once per month on Grey Malkin, we put a character on trial. I tend to comprehensively review their history and put together a presentation about them first, focusing on key character traits, major events in their lives, important relationships, and psychological attributes. In the past, we've done powerful and thought-provoking episodes on Charles Xavier and Wanda Maximoff and Hank McCoy and recently Pietro Maximoff. When we did Kane Marco, I learned some valuable lessons that you can't cover a, <laughs> an entire character's entire history. Otherwise, the podcast will go way too long. So we're using a different format slightly for one of our favorite characters, uh, Magneto, today. We're going to split this into two separate episodes, and we have a lot to say. Uh, even though we are limiting what we're going to say, it's still going to be some incredible content. Now, Magneto is a particularly complicated character to try to cover in this format. First of all, he has appeared hundreds, if not thousands of times. He's been a hero and a villain and an anti-hero. He's been a world leader and a grandfather and a man who has threatened to destroy the planet. He can snap his fingers and kill dozens, or he can be so compassionate as to save the life of one. But what makes him most complex is that even when he's committing major crimes, they aren't always seen as crimes when you look at what he's trying to achieve from a particular perspective. But if you squint, they still look like crimes from the other direction. So we're about to break this episode into two parts. In the first, we're gonna be talking about Magneto's backstory in depth. We're gonna be covering all of the retroactive continuity, the stuff that's supposed to have taken place before his first appearance in X-Men number one. And then in our second episode, we're gonna be putting, on, putting him on trial for all of his pre-Claremont appearances. So everything that happened chronologically before Claremont took over the X-Men. Uh, these two episodes are gonna be something special. This is maybe the most excited I've been on the podcast so far. And if you listen, you know I'm excited a lot and regularly, but this is something I've been working on for about three months and I'm very, very pumped. Have some tissues ready just in case you might need them. Keep a pen and paper nearby because we're going to cover a lot of content and you're about to learn a whole lot about the master of magnetism. Now, first, we have an incredible, intelligent, and good-looking cast assembled here today. I am going to present each of my esteemed guests and let you guys introduce yourselves. As you do so, let us know your gender pronouns, where people might know you from, and then let us hear your favorite Magneto, Magneto story if you can pick just one. Uh, so let's please begin with uh, one of my favorite people, Noelle Reed. Yeah, I'm Noelle, she, her. I host the X-Men Unraveled podcast and always get to love when I 
get to join on Gray Moth and Lane. Um, picking a favorite Magneto story is super hard for me because I love Magneto. I think he's done nothing wrong ever. Um, but I think I like when they reveal that he has that past in the Holocaust. He gets this enormous depth to his story that wasn't there. He's not just a quote unquote crazy villain. He's somebody who's had all of these experiences and it just really adds to who he is and what his actions are. I'm calling bias in the jury already. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, let's please have uh, one of my favorite novelists, Tristan Palmgren, go next. Hello, true believers. I am Tristan. Um, you might know me from uh, my Aconite uh, Marvel novels. Um, the ones out right now are about Domino and Outlaw, and coming up pretty soon, I have a novel out in May. Um, about the new X-Men and another one coming out soon about Squirrel Girl. Um, my, um, my pronouns are they, them. Um, and my favorite Magneto story kind of changes from time to time. But right now, I think it's going to be one of those many moments in which the character was supposed to die forever at the end of, uh, at the end of Secret Wars. Um, there's a, there is an issue devoted to, uh, I believe it's number 21, devoted to um, summing up his story and essentially making an epilogue uh, uh, out of the, um, the big moment of uh, quote unquote final demise. Uh, and then let's have uh, Carrie Harris, another of my very favorite novelists, go next. Uh, I'm Carrie Harris. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm also an Aconite novelist. I've done X-Men, Ghost Rider, um, X-Men again. And um, uh, coming up is Avengers, which is kind of crazy. Um, my, my, favorite, um, my favorite Magneto in general is Dadneto, when, when he's being a, a dad, which he usually doesn't do with his own children, mind you. Um, but that's my favorite one. So I think probably... Um, my favorite story is um, the uh, Marvel Voices Pride issue. Anthony Oliveira has a terrific story with Iceman where, um, where Magneto is a father figure. And I just, I love it with the fire of a thousand suns. Uh, not only have we talked to Anthony about that story on the podcast, but he's going to join us for the trial tomorrow, which I'm so I know. About. You'll have to tell him. I will. Uh, let's go over to uh, Justin Wilder, who is one of my very favorite people. <laughs> hey everyone, my name is Justin. I am co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast with my wife, Alicia. We talk current comics primarily, but dive in and around the full continuity of X-Men. Uh, big Magneto fan, as you can tell by my t-shirt. He is just, I, I don't know if I could limit it to just one story. 150, Uncanny X-Men 150 sticks out. His declaration to the united nations the the leaders of the world and and also just the one that sticks out in my mind it's it's the third episode of the animated series it's kind of a retelling of issue one and magneto saying to the x-men it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees and i remember being a kid like wow this is powerful this is really intense and i love it Amazing. And I am so uh, honored and frankly flummoxed to have the esteemed uh, and talented Hussein Rashid with us. Hi, Hussein. Hello, Chad, and hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here. Uh, so my name is Hussein Rashid, he, him, uh, based in New York, Lenape land. 
And uh, I like Magneto stories that are messy as all hell. Um, and so my favorite or my, my current favorite, recent favorite, is the 2014-2015 limited series, where, which leads into End of Days, uh, just because it's got the dad, Nito, uh, and I love that, Carrie, thank you, the, the you know, his relationship with Polaris. But, you know, this is sort of, Magneto was right, and you sort of get him in a way that I don't think you get in, or at least I didn't get in other ways. And the individuality of Magneto really comes forward. Oh, and where you know me from. Sorry, that's probably a big deal because I don't have a podcast. I just show up on other people's shows. Um, I work on religion and popular culture, and I have uh, co-edited a book with Jessica Baldanzi uh, called Miss Marvel's America, Nor Normal, uh, which looks at Miss Marvel, which seems really relevant considering the show's trailer just dropped uh, a few days ago from before we recorded this. So, um, yeah, so I work on uh, religion and popular culture, especially within comics. Uh, Noel and Carrie... Oh, never mind. No, you did. Noel and Carrie got to meet Jessica when we did our Conversation on Women uh, podcast a little while back. Sorry, I had to rewind my brain a second. Uh, uh, Hussein, what an honor to have you here. I know you're a lifelong uh, X-Men fan uh, as well, like all of us. Uh, so we obviously have a lot to say together. Uh, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. If I had to choose a single issue, uh, X-Men Unlimited number two by Fabian Nicieza is a really surprising story from an all kind of alternative perspective uh, where you're seeing people kind of reckon with who Magneto is. Um, if I had to choose just one single story, it's probably my favorite one, uh, but there's a lot out there. Now, as we continue, uh, I want to say really quickly for our listening audience, we're going to hit some sensitive content today. Magneto has some tragic stuff. There's a lot of trauma and a lot of stuff based in real world events. So just as a disclaimer, we can get saucy, we can get mature on here, but this is a particularly sensitive podcast in that we're going to be covering some tough stuff. Tomorrow, we'll be, uh, in our next episode, it'll be a little bit more comic book nerdy stuff, but today's the tough stuff. Uh, so just be prepared uh, and take care of yourself and pause as you need to, to grab some water and tissues if you need to. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So it's an absolute honor to have each of you here. Uh, now, we're going to divide today up into six sections. Each of us has been assigned a section of Magneto's publication history to present. And then, of course, we'll be having some conversations about it. Uh, really quickly, though, I want to talk a little bit about what makes this character so special and what makes this conversation today so special. In the very first issue of the X-Men, Professor X gathers his five teenage students and they battle their first and greatest foe, Magneto, the master of magnetism. An actual Magneto is a small electric generator that contains a permanent magnet, but this character was named for his incredible mastery of magnetism itself, able to manipulate metal and energy in incredible ways. Magneto was one of dozens of supervillains created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and the others, all of them in the 60s at least, ranting madmen in outlandish costumes who use alliterative insults and crazy science experiments and world domination plots. Now, despite the cover of X-Men number one calling Magneto Earth's most powerful supervillain, there was something about him that set him apart from the Mole Man and the Mandarin and Dr. Octopus and even Dr. Doom. First, it was his costume deep red and light purple, a scary helmet adorned with a startling pair of horns, a classic purple cape and boot and glove, boots and gloves. Second, it was his motivations. Literally the first words Magneto speaks on panel are these. The moment is at hand. All of my months of preparation and planning shall now pay off. The human race no longer deserves dominion over the planet Earth. 
the day of the mutants is upon us. The first phase of my plan shall be to show my power to make Homo sapiens bow to Homo superior. From the very beginning, Magneto's goal was to protect humans by carving out a stronghold for them in the world, albeit one that he wanted to rule. He saw humans as beneath mutants. He was the direct counter to the dream of Professor X, which was to peacefully coexist with humans. And so for the first 12 or so years of his publication history, Magneto fought for mutants. And we're going to cover those appearances in our trial next time. And then in 1975, Chris Claremont took over writing the X-Men. He took the seeds that had been planted there by Stanley and other writers, and he grew them into something amazing. And Magneto suddenly went from a ranting lunatic to perhaps the most sympathetic villain of all time. Claremont gave Magneto a history, a tragic backstory, and a complex set of motivations that has made this character a fan favorite ever since. If I, uh, I poll a lot of people in the, on the podcast about who their favorite characters are, and Magneto's listed almost as often as Wolverine or Mystique or Cyclops. Those are the ones we get the most, along with Rogue, I suppose. Modern fans will sometimes talk about how Magneto seems to be based off of Malcolm X, while Professor X has some parallels to Martin Luther King. But that isn't where Claremont drew his inspiration from so far as I understand it. Now, before we continue with this next part, let me be very clear about four things. Number one, I have not interviewed Chris Claremont about this directly. I've read articles and I've done my research, but only Chris Claremont can say what he intended with these storylines. Number two, I am not in any capacity an expert on Jewish culture, on World War II, on anti-Semitism, or on the formation of Israel. I've spent the last few months reading books and listening to interviews and watching documentaries and carefully preparing, but I still am kind of a neophyte in this realm. The more I learn, the more I need to learn. Number three, what I'm about to present is extremely culturally sensitive, but I am, uh, excuse me, what I'm about to present is extremely culturally sensitive. I invite anyone listening to listen carefully, take notes, and research more on your own. Even my research is, of course, influenced by my views and experiences as a middle-aged, white, gay, American male father. Any opinions expressed here are my own, and I can't speak for anyone else. In my effort to create a safe space here on Gray Malkin, that means being willing to have thought-provoking and hard conversations, but it doesn't mean I'm going to get it all right. Please reach out to me if I have been unintentionally insensitive or if I have something incorrect. Finally, number four, Magneto is a fictional character. By giving him origins based in real world events and by giving him motivations that may be based on real world individuals, we add complexity to his character, but that's where it ends. Any action he takes as a fictional character in a fictional universe cannot be directly compared to real world events. Just like the Genosian genocide in the comics can't be compared to any real world genocides that have tragically taken place. And the legacy virus in the comics cannot be directly compared to the AIDS epidemic. Fiction, even when based in reality, is still fiction. So direct comparisons between real world figures and fictional characters can only be stretched so far. Okay. So as I understand it, Chris Claremont based his interpretations on Professor X and Magneto upon two real world politicians who were actively involved in the formation of the state of Israel. Professor X was based on David Ben-Gurion and Magneto on Menachem Begin. These men lived decades, they have family and descendants and they were world leaders on a massively complicated political stage. I'm bringing up only a few points here and it is up to the listener to research and learn more about these men if they choose to and I would actively encourage it. 
I watched a documentary about Begin called Upheaval that was wonderful, and that's a great starting point. This just shows the brilliance of Chris Claremont to take these complicated characters with competing philosophies and base them off of an incredible, I'll try the sentence again. It shows the brilliance of Chris Claremont to take these very complicated real world men with these competing philosophies and then base an incredible franchise off of them because the X-Men comes down to the competing views of Professor X and Magneto. What I'm about to say is vastly oversimplified. Jewish people have been the targets of hatred and anti-Semitism in many places around the world for centuries. The Holocaust resulting in millions of deaths in the attempt the Holocaust resulting in millions of deaths of the attempt at stamping out an entire culture is the most blatant example, but Jewish people have been attacked, discriminated against, and disenfranchised across most of history, including today. Jewish people are represented in every culture and country around the world, and they are vastly different culturally and generationally from each other even, yet they have the shared experience of this discrimination. After the atrocities in World War II, the state of Israel was founded in the Holy Lands, meant to be a safe place for those of the Jewish faith. David Ben-Gurion lived from 1886 to 1973, and he's one of the key founders of the state of Israel. He lived most of his life in public service. He's basically the George Washington of Israel, although that's inelegantly phrased. He's their storied leader, and he was the first to sign their Declaration of Independence. Ben-Gurion was a Russian-born Jew who spent years in Poland and experienced anti-Semitism his entire life. A veteran from World War I, Ben-Gurion married and had children before beginning his political career as a Zionist leader. Ben-Gurion was opinionated and focused, yet he did his best to create safety for Jews while building relationships with other countries, perhaps most controversially West Germany at the time, even accepting reparations from the German government to the vast criticism of many. Ben-Gurion is considered one of the most important men of the 20th century. One of Ben-Gurion's largest political rivals was Menachem Begin, who lived from 1913 to 1992. Another Russian-born Jew who moved to Poland, but a man with a very different life. After marrying his beloved wife, Eliza, Begin worked to help hundreds of struggling Jews escape from dangerous situations, and he was arrested, tortured, and imprisoned for this crime. Though his wife survived the next years as the Nazi party took control and World War II broke out, Begin's parents and brothers, a brother and many loved ones were killed in the Holocaust. In the following years, Begin allied himself with rebellious forces that stood against the Zionist leadership, which was led by David Ben-Gurion. The British and especially the Germans, they stood against as well. And Begin was loudly critical of the actions of Ben-Gurion. And he engaged in public demonstrations and open rebellion with his allies while living underground for years. Begin ran for office multiple times, but wasn't elected to public office until the late 1970s. He went on to make a number of very controversial decisions as Israel's leader. Now, both of these men are very complicated and frequently controversial world leaders who had particular sets of ideals and who made alliances and deals along the way to protect their people the best way they saw fit. These men are lauded for their successes and failures both all of these years later. Just like any other men, they were shaped by their experiences and they changed over time. No man is the same at 25 or 45 or 65. World events and shifting cultures altered their politics over time. Both men made impossible decisions that they thought were the best at the time those decisions were made. And I'd encourage you to learn more about both of them. The understanding and interpretations of these two men as they apply to fictional characters like Professor X and Magneto can only be stretched so far. But in summary, I will simply say this. 
Chris Claremont is a narrative genius. He took this ranting madman of a supervillain who fought for his race, and in a series of backstories and weird places, he gave him a complexity that changed readers' understanding of him. Origin stories that were later expanded on and explored by other writers, and stories are still being told about these times. Like Begin, Magneto lost his family and faced constant oppression, and like Begin, at least in the early days, Magneto would do anything to protect his people. Magneto was right shirts have been seen around the Marvel Universe throughout the years. His actions were viewed as evil back in the beginning, but new generations of women and queer people and people of color and disabled people and immigrants have been born into this complicated world, and many are tired of trying to peacefully coexist. Magneto's harsh actions are extreme to some and reasonable to others. The shifting views between Professor X and Magneto have always been the keystone for the entire X-Men franchise. Professor X is the powerful secret keeping telepath with a dream, building up our beloved team of X-Men in his private school so that mutants can peacefully coexist with humans. Magneto is the, is the man who never wanted coexistence, but instead saw mutants as superior to humans, deserving of their own culture, country, and politics, and willing to do whatever it takes to achieve it. Magneto is extraordinarily complicated, and we're going to take time exploring the different parts of his history today. So before we turn the time over to our next presenter, let me just hear from our panel today. What are some of your thoughts about this idea of Claremont's ideas regarding Magneto uh, and some of the complexities that we've talked about already? So, so Chad, let me chime in. It's, uh, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned that we don't really know what Claremont's framing idea was. And I, I read an interview and I couldn't find it, but where he said, you know, I wasn't thinking about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X's sort of where people settled on their own, right? And that's, our, I, I think, our, our pleasure as the reader to figure out what makes sense to us as we read these stories. Um, but I, part of my issue with that framing, and even with the framing of this Ben-Gurion-Begin um, comparison, is that a lot of it is set up in rhetoric over who's a good revolutionary, who's a bad revolutionary, who's a good nationalist, who's a bad nationalist, right? You look at uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Subhash Chandra Bose in India, these are the same thing. Even when you look at the civil rights movement, you can do this comparison with JFK and, and uh, LBJ, right? Like who's who's really going to bring it along? And, and part of this negotiation, right, is trying to figure out how do we neuter revolution, right? That's what this framing does. It's like, we want MLK to be the good civil rights leader so we can ignore Malcolm X. And then by saying he's the good civil rights leader, we can ignore the fact that Martin actually called for upending upending the state as much as Malcolm did. It's just his mechanisms were different, right? It's this, the March on Washington speech. Everybody talks about I have a dream, or you know, and, and the line from it: uh, judge people by the content of the character, not the color of their skin. Uh, as to avoid any of the other criticisms of capitalism, the uh, industrial military complex, and so on, a uh, poverty in this country that that King goes after, right? So it's a way in which we can neuter actual revolutionary thought. I think the other thing that comes in related to that is that it doesn't really let us get into what are people like King and X argue against? Who are they arguing against? It's as though they're in a asylum. We're not actually dealing with the questions of white supremacy that we're dealing with, right? Who are their oppressors? What is the oppression against which they're struggling? Or when we look at Ben-Gurion and uh, Begin, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting parallel, but why not Arafat? Why isn't it Ben-Gurion and Arafat? Why isn't it the Palestinian struggle, right? Like Claron is a very sophisticated worldly writer. 
particularly, not in particularly, but in his, even in his early runs, you see it, right? Like he's building layer upon layer. Um, this is also the era of Dune, which is widely read as an allegory for the Palestinian liberation struggle. So why isn't this actually a question of, is this a, a question of a two-state or a one-state situation in Israel? Which, of course, Ben-Gurion and Begin get into, but I think it's more interesting if we try to complicate these stories. So that's one issue I have with this particular framing. You know, just like you said, we can't read the legacy virus one-to-one for AIDS. I don't think we can read this one-to-one for sort of these revolutionary dyads without actually neutering what any of these dyads were trying to do or the context in which they were operating. Yeah, I I think a lot of the same things. I think that, you know, um, a comparison like this can really go one of two ways. It can, it can map out so that uh, it's very black and white and, uh, you know, one character slash real world person is, is the hero and lauded for doing the right thing and the other one is villainized. Um, but, you know, I think if you do it right, and and you can argue whether or not that was done here, um, you know, that that it does become messy shades of gray. Um, and I think part of building this history for Magneto um, to explain why he takes the actions that he, de- he does as opposed to leaving him a, a dry hand-washing megalomaniac who just wants to put lasers on the moon, um, you know, I think it it gives context and and reality, and I think that's a big part of of why people react to him the way that that they do. That that there are facets of his argument and facets of his history that justify that. Um, so that's where I like these comparisons, um, but I think they can go awry too. You can also map their stated causes uh, onto um, onto history, but mapping their personalities um, and how they use their their how how they justify themselves to themselves um, is a little bit different. One of the things I'm sure we're going to get to uh, later on, um, especially in um, in the trial segment, is how. Um, Often Magneto can be hateful and cruel, and um, and use um, and use his uh, his state his um, his stated ideology as as justification for political vendettas in much the same way that um, you know we talked about Charles Xavier doing the uh, doing the same. He um, he is not a perfect representation of his ideals either. He has uh, quite a number of uh, individual uh, uh, failings that don't easily map onto that either. I think all of this adds to the complexity of the difference between the two, right? I don't know that I've ever, I know you sold Xavier as the hero, but uh, he does some non-heroic things and you're sold Magneto as the villain, but he does some things that you can really identify with maybe chooses some means that you wouldn't have chosen. Uh, I think that, yes, Professor Xavier is a jerk and Magneto is a hero to many people. And I feel like that level of complexity between who is right, who is wrong, who is the hero, who is the villain creates a lot more dynamics that rival into real life. You know, these are people with agendas. These are people that have things that mean things to them, people that mean things to them that are 
making their decisions based on their backstories, their histories, their influences. And it's so hard to say one is right for these reasons, one is wrong for these reasons. They're both just who they are doing what they see that they need to do for their people. I think one of the reasons, oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump. I was just thinking that it kind of looking into Magneto and his justifications for why he did something and Professor X did something else. And they both thought they were on the absolute right path. I feel like there's so many different parallels. I think the Menachem Begin is a good place to start. Um, But there's so many parallels to any group that's facing oppression and how hard it is to overcome oppression because is violence the right answer when you've tried every peaceful option? Um, And so I feel like that's part of why Magneto's become like this important character to a lot of people because he's one option and he's, he's fighting for the oppressed and he's willing to make sacrifices and do what he feels needs to be done. Um, And it's easier to see that fictionalized in a character who you can understand the justifications than when you take it and place it in a real person in real life with real world situations and how messy that gets. Um, Because the whole Ben-Gurion, again, that whole era is just filled with so many messy things. You can't, you can't sort one piece out without going down a million other roads where something was wrong and something's right. And so it's nice to have that fictional character that you can look at who is fighting for what they believe in, but there's no real world parallel to them. I think one of the most fascinating things about what Claremont did in the 60s, it was so easy to be sold the hero as Xavier and the villain as Magneto, right? But when you add this backstory to Magneto, it changes his motivations because they start to both in different capacities represent the oppressed voices of people who have been oppressed. And that lands to all of us in some capacity. I also want to point out we live in a very complicated world. We're analyzing 1960s and 1980s content from a 2022 perspective, right? That's always going to make things complex. But we uh, we have a world full of people who are fighting for rights and recognition, rights for healthcare, rights to marry, rights to vote. We can take uh, we can take people fighting for their space and their voice and and look at how they can see these competing philosophies as as justified or not justified but there's a different level when you have someone fighting to exist right when we have groups who have been owned or slaughtered or killed for who they are that's a different thing than just fighting for political rights and we don't have to give a lot of weight to that but both of these things matter in the context of what we're going to focus on today which is the slightly less topic a less heavy topic of mutants fighting for existence and two of the things that make that really unique number 1 there are times when mutants are fighting for rights And there are times when they are fighting not to be wiped out because their government is building death robots. And there's been multiple concentration camps built for them over the years, more than one time. Uh, Between Neverland and the stuff that happened on decimated Genosha uh, uh, with the Red Skull during the Red Onslaught era. I mean, we've seen a lot of different things, plus the Genoshan uh, uh, massacre itself. So these are people who are fighting for not only the right to live, but the right to not be wiped out legally by their government. Uh, 
But there's the added complexity of, and we could we could take this into a longer conversation if we chose, mutants have superpowers. These are people who can sneeze and blow you up. <laughs> so it starts to give a different voice to the oppressors in some ways of people who are like, you know, I don't want to die because you exist, uh, which is not the same thing as when you are uh, an oppressed people in real life because we don't have superpowers. <laughs> so uh, some kind of interesting thoughts there. Uh, any more thoughts before we uh, continue? You know, Chad, I think that's a really good setup. This idea of superpowers that that you just mentioned. Um, for me, it resonates. No, we don't have superpowers in real life. But if you think about and 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 leading, you know, we're coming off this Malcolm X, Martin Luther King conversation, we're heading into discussion about the Holocaust. But if you think about the tropes that come in, right, is like we have to uh, oppress Jewish people because. They run the banks and they run education and they run finance, right? all these anti-Semitic tropes that come up, right? And so because Jews are superhuman, we have to oppress them. Black people are better athletes. They're physically superior. They're stronger, right? Again, they, they're assigned these superhuman attributes. Uh, and that's the reason that you have to oppress them, right? So it's really interesting to see, as you're talking about this, uh, mutants are superpowered and we have to be afraid of them. Uh, yeah, but is that really so far removed from the real world where these superhuman qualities are... are put on to, to other marginalized groups in the real world. Um, you know, I, so I just, I just, it just triggered something for me when you were talking about that. That is a trope I'm, uh, I've, am not particularly comfortable with. Um, there you do see, uh, you do see it all the time and not just in the, um, not just in the X-Men. I'm thinking of um, like N.K. Jemison's uh, um, Broken Earth series um, in which, um, you have a similarly oppressed group of people who are feared and hunted and um, and just generally tre um, treated awfully who have a, um, because they they have these gifts, these powers um, that you can do that um, they can do incredible things with and oftentimes very violent things. And it, it really complicates um complicates the power dynamics of stories about oppression in ways that I kind of, I wish we could, I, I, I don't know that, that well, that I, that I'll just say that I am uncomfortable with and that it gives um, powers to, um, to people that in the, in the, um, the real world, um, from in the real the real world uh, oppressed peoples that these stories are taking inspiration from that they don't have um it it kind of in a way just it um might almost justify um the fears that um that people are fed in propaganda about uh, about oppressed groups uh, we we also see this storyline play out in different areas of Marvel, but less successfully. You've got the blue Cree versus the pink Cree, or you've got the inhuman society with the race of alpha primitives that they keep. Or even in the X-Men, you see mutants who are quote unquote passing, given more screen time often than those who are quote unquote not passing, who are expected to kind of hide in plain sight. There's a lot of interesting parallels. We're going to keep this focused on Magneto uh, specifically for this trial, but there's a lot of feelings that are showing up. And I, I want to just emphasize the delicacy of this conversation. I love that we can have this intellectual, smart, passionate group of diverse people having this intense conversation and still say, stay safe even in our discomfort sometimes. 
Um, so, uh, <laughs> so thank you all for sharing so far. Uh, if you if you thought this was serious so far, we're going to go into Magneto's backstory now, <laughs> which, <laughs> which we are beginning with uh, <laughs> with uh, the uh, Magneto Testament series, which is such a, a deep, painful, emotional dive already. Uh, let me turn the time over uh, to Hussein for a little while. Yeah, thank you, Chad. Um, so before I get into Testament, I think. You know, I want to. I just want to. I want to think through this relationship between Professor X and Magneto, right? Because we have to assume that they're operating in a similar sort of social environment, right? Everything Magneto knows, we assume Professor X knows in terms of how mutants are being treated. Um, and so, I, I think that there's a lot that gets pinned on Magneto's backstory, but I think there's also a deeper philosophical question. And I think that gets resolved or not resolved, but we see coming to maturity in the Krakoan era, in the modern era, the contemporary era, um, where you see, you know, the current incarnation of Professor X and Magneto really being much closer than they ever have been before. Um, but I think I think what that shows us is that Professor X and Magneto are operating on a spectrum, right? Just to come back. This is not a dichotomy. And, and it really comes back to how do you see human nature and human here being larger, right? Is, is are we, do you follow sort of the Hobbesian view that life is nasty, brutish, and short? Or do you believe that people are inherently good? And if we come together in a social context, you can create a better good, right? You, can, you can't let that, that good quality of humanity come forward. Um, and, and I think it's that that helps us. And I really don't want to overdetermine the Holocaust for Magneto, because I think there's so much that happens to him in the interim. But I think we have to take it seriously that this is part of the Magneto we meet in the 60s is what's happened to him in the uh, 30s and 40s. Um, and so I was tasked, uh, you know, with looking at um, X-Men Magneto Testament, written by Greg Puck and illustrated by uh, Carmine. And please, if somebody knows if I'm saying this properly, uh, D. John Domenico. Um, uh, you know, where they look at, they take five issues in a limited run series to look at Max Eisenhardt, who grows up to be Magneto um, and his time in Germany and then in Poland and then in Auschwitz uh, and his time as a Sonderkommando. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, what a Sonderkommando means in a moment uh, for those who may be unfamiliar. But we start the story meeting uh, Max's family, his father, Jacob, his sister Ruthie, his uncle Eric. Um, I could not for the life of me find the name of his mother, but for some reason I have Marta in the back of my head. Um, but it could also be a Justice League thing. And I don't mean to make light of it, but it feels like when in doubt Martha seems to be a good option in superhero universe for a mother's name uh, across uh, franchises. Um, and then we have uh, secondary characters. His... Uh, his school teacher, Herr Kalb, and uh, Magda, who we know eventually ends up being his first wife, uh, with whom he has a daughter named Anya. We don't get to that point. We, we really just meet Magda and uh, Max's children in this story. Um, and we open in, in Germany um, with the, the rise of the Nazi party, the rise of the Third Reich, and the introduction of the Nuremberg Laws. And the Nuremberg Laws were these laws that were passed in Germany that essentially said that German Jews were not in fact a German. And these were deeply racialized 
race, racing laws that made Jews a separate race from other Germans. So it didn't matter if they, if a Jewish family had been multi-generational German, uh, they were, uh, and I'm using this language intentionally because it's showing up again in the 21st century as though we've learned nothing in a hundred years, uh, but that these were globalists and capitalists who were uh, uh, rootless and and who were, uh, you know, there to take advantage of the people. And, and pulling on these tropes, at one point we see um, uh, Eric, Max's uncle, uh, being paraded through the streets uh, with a sign says that I shamed a German woman, right? Because he was dating or or, or having an affair with a non-Jewish German woman. Um, and so, you know, the purity of the state, the purity of the state is measured by the purity of its women. So we see a really strong gender discourse in this that's coming up as well. Um, we end up in Kristallnacht and we find out um, as, as the uh, concurrently with uh, Jewish businesses uh, being destroyed, Jewish communities being attacked, synagogues and temples being uh, uh, set fire to, blown up, um, that there's also a um, uh, a movement, not just against the Jewish communities, but against the uh, Romani community, a community to which Magda uh, belongs to. Uh, and again, here, I think we've got to understand questions of race. And this is, I think, I, and I could be wrong, but this is the first time I recall the fact that Romani tend to be slightly darker skinned than Germans really put into the page. Um, and so that there's a visible racial element here. Ruthie, who is who's Max's sister, very early on talks about being called Greta and passing as a German. This is not something that's available to the Romani community, right? So they become sort of the first wave of these pogroms. Um, and, and the entry point uh, where these come in. And then the family, you know, is on the run. They end up in Poland. They're betrayed in Poland. Um, and here I'll bring in, you know, if you've read uh, Arch Spiegelman's uh, uh, Mouse, you know, he tells some of this story as well, or his, his father's story, um, where this is not an uncommon occurrence. Um, the family is killed. Um, as uh, rather than being taken to a concentration camp, they're killed in, in Poland. Um, at some point, it's believed, it's described that Max exercises his magnetic powers and saves himself from the firing squad. In, in Testament, um, it's put up that his father, Jacob, sort of shields him from the bullet. And so he, Max does get grazed by a bullet, is knocked unconscious, ends up in this burial pit. Um, Max eventually comes out of the burial pit, is caught, and is eventually sent to Auschwitz. Um, at Auschwitz, he meets his teacher, Kalb, who had tried to protect him in school from anti-Semitism. Um, and gives uh, Kalb gives Max advice about lying about his age, putting in requests on where to work, and so on, to try to keep him alive. And in the, again, with the history of the Holocaust and in the notes provided actually in the back of Testament, you find there's lots of testimonies of this, of people who had been in the camps for a while trying to pass on knowledge to newer people who were coming in to help keep them alive through this process. Um, at this point, through happens through various uh, happenings, uh, Max ends up as part of the Sonderkommando. Uh, the Sonderkommando are the Jews who are responsible for leading their co-religionists to the chambers and cleaning out the chambers. 
uh, of the wealth and, you know, collecting gold teeth, collecting hair, um, the, the material goods, right? I mean, we have to understand the Holocaust both as deeply racist, and I, and I, I, I'm talking about anti-Semitism as a type of racism, right? Uh, so it's deeply racist, um, as well as being about a massive expropriation of wealth, right? I mean, this is something we can't get away from. Modern racism and expropriation of wealth are intimately linked, uh, and we can we can we can go a whole ways down here. But um, the way I think I, I, I've actually been to Auschwitz, and they have the room, and they have the photos where they have these things in piles of things that have survived. It's, it's very haunting, and the way that Puck or, or um, the illustrator represented is a room full of spoons, right? Rather than getting into, you, you see Max pulling out teeth and him trading gold teeth for favors in the camp, but it's this room full of spoons that this is this moment of all the people who've died, right? And it just hits you. Like, it, there's no words, there's no descriptions. You're just like, you know, each one of these spoons represents a person. And what do you do when you see that as a child? Right. Max is about 17 years old at this point, 16, 17 years old. What do you do when you see that? And in, in, it's just one of the most powerful panels, I think, in the entire series. Uh, it it hits you. And and Max leverages his uh, position within the Sondra commander to save Magda, to escape with Magda. Um, and that sort of ends the testament. Just before I leave and, and turn it back over to the group is, I think, one of the tensions that keeps coming up throughout the story is, do you fight or do you play by the rules? Where Jacob, Max's father, is saying, we need to play by the rules. Keep your head down, otherwise it'll get stomped down. And his uncle Eric is, you know, part of the Warsaw Ghetto resistance, is uh, always looking to fight. But he's also keeping Max from fighting where he says, Every time we hurt one of them, they kill a hundred of us, right? And again, based in, in actual fact, right? Collective punishment um, that comes out. So really thinking through when is the right time to fight? When do you fight? How do you fight? Even the resistance in Auschwitz is saying, how many do we have to let die before we fight back? But by letting 10 die now, do we save a hundred later? And these calculations that keep coming forward, what to do, when to do it, how to do it when you are faced with this tremendous loss, that it becomes mind-numbing, right? And, and I just want to come back, Chad, to something you said, you know, that this is a fictional character tied to real-world events and talking about how we can't, you know, there are limits on what we can do with the fictional character. But I want to, and I agree with you, but I want to come at it the other way, which is, for me, fiction is a way to try to make the horror of what this is real, right? There's this adage, and I'm, I'm forgetting it, the exact way to frame it, but, you know, a, a million uh, is a statistic, one is a tragedy, right? And every time, that's the reason we read things like Mouse, it's the reason we read the Diary of Anne Frank, is because it's that one story that helps us understand what the Holocaust was in ways that numbers like six million don't. And for me, I think that's what Testament does, right? Never again is not an idea, it's an action. And it's not an action that has to happen, right? At, at the moment, we see it. We can talk about the Uyghurs right now. We can talk about the Rohingya and, and talk about genocides that are happening in front of our eyes to which we're doing nothing, right? Because we're looking for that moment when it's right to intervene rather than saying never again is a moment that's happening every time. In Muslim traditions, we talk about uh, every day is the Shura, every land is Karbala. 
This is an important massacre in Muslim memory. And it's like, if you remember that every day this massacre is happening, then every day you're called to do the right thing. And, and for me, that's what something like Testament does, is take the people who aren't necessarily going to read Mouse or who aren't necessarily going to read Anne Frank, but who are going to read the X-Men and ground you into that reality to make never again a meaningful action every day. So that to me is the power of fiction into the real world. Uh, Magneto just happens to be the vehicle. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to the group. Beautiful, beautiful summary. Uh, Magneto's mom is named E. Uh, E-D-I-E. It's, a, it's a, a, a brief aside in the third issue. Um, so just to note, uh, uh, two things I'll say in comment, Hussein, a beautiful summary. Um, number one, there seems to be an element of helplessness on Magneto's part until he later discovers that he has the power to fight back, right? And the second piece of that, there seems to be an element, at least in my interpretation of the reading of that series, in which he is really struggling to find hope for a period of time, but Magda is his hope. Saving this one woman becomes his kind of sole purpose or his reason for surviving because he's lost everything else. Uh, it's, a, it's a really tragic, haunting read. Rereading it uh, every time is, is so deeply painful for me. Yeah, Chad, I think, I think you're right. Magda is his hope, and I, and I should have mentioned that. Uh, because at one point it does it does seem like he's suicidal until he sees Magda across a chain fence, and that becomes his focus. And it's even commented on explicitly in the comic that he's found a reason to live now. I, I think I disagree a little bit. I'm not sure Max, and I'm careful not to call him Magneto because I don't think he's Magneto at this point. He's Max Eisenhardt. He's a, he's a teenage boy, and, and I think it's really important to understand that as part of Magneto's backstory is that before he's he's Eric, he's Max, um, and and Max who sees all these things. Um, and I don't think he's helpless, right? I think one of the things that Testament shows us is the ways in which he is trying to exercise power, but he's trying to exercise power smartly, right? And he's learning from his father, he's learning from his uncle, he's learning from the resistance um, in, in the ghettos and in the camps. Uh, but he's also keeping Magda alive, right? And talking about his hope. Just like how his teacher kept him alive and was able to use whatever means he could, Max is doing the same thing, right? Every time he's pulling teeth out from the victims of the chambers, he's saving some to pay off the guards to make sure Magda's alive, right? And that's an exercise in power and it's gruesome and it's grotesque, but it's the power he has and it's the power he's exercising. And, and I, you know, for me, I think that as he develops different types of powers, some of his lessons get lost that he's learning here about the strategy, the temperament. But I think it's part of him and I think that's what allows that character growth later on for me. That again, you know, totally retconning back into Testament, but I think that that what's happening in Testament is laying the groundwork for what Magneto happen, happens for Magneto later on. His struggle later on isn't really with restrained power; it's with um, restraining his power, um, holding back, trying to not do everything that he that he could do to his enemies. Any other thoughts from the panel before we continue? Noel? Yeah, just um, not gonna lie, I wasn't in the right headspace to reread Testament before today. Um, read through my notes because I've been through it before, but I, I was just really struck. I mean, it's a, it's a Marvel comic book and they really didn't shy away from showing the realities and the horrors. And 
I think it's so important to who Magneto is because he's seen the dehumanization and he's lost his family and he's seeing this every day and he's forced to participate in it in order to survive when he's his under commando. And so later when you see these things that he does or how cold and heartless Magneto is and you're like, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? And then you think about that past and how he's seen the worst of the worst. And it just gives such a important layer to who he is that without that and without the writers and the illustrators boldly showing, you know, I mean, it's, it's really is comparable to mouse in how much they show of what happened and how they go over all of those important, um, events like crystal knocked um so it really just kind of just adds that layer to who he is when you see these horrible things that he does later on i want to note for the sake of comprehensiveness we do see magneto's time in the concentration camps briefly reflected on in other titles in excalibur volume three number seven he looks back and sees uh, a butcher who would experiment on uh, on men in the concentration camp, men and women. And we know off panel that it's Mr. Sinister, but Magneto doesn't necessarily know that. We also, in Colin Bunn and Gabriel Hernandez-Waltz's series, uh, we see multiple flashbacks to Magneto in the concentration camps and before when there's one particular Nazi, Er Hitzig, who is kind of coming after him and killing his friends and people. Uh, and later on in Rick Remender's uh, Uncanny Avengers run, uh, uh, Magneto has Hitzig killed by Wolverine. Uh, he finds him in his older years. Uh, so some interesting parallels that are often worked into Magneto's narrative, but not often in the places that you would expect. Um, there's a heaviness, obviously, to this conversation. I'm saying that with a smile because I don't know what else to do with all this energy. There's, uh, there's, there's uh, a, a soberness about all of this. Uh, trauma shapes people, speaking as a therapist. And it's an interesting, we'll, we'll draw upon the comparison in a minute, but both Professor X and Magneto are orphans, uh, but they've come from such different places in life and the losses that they suffer, you can't even really compare them one to the other because they're just so astronomically different. Uh, were Professor X a, a victim of the same types of tragedies, how would that change him as a character, which is a much different conversation, obviously. Uh, how much does this fuel Magneto? And then part of our conversation in the next couple of days has to become how does Magneto justify the types of actions he commits against others given the atrocities he's seen committed against the people around him because for many of his victims uh, he is the oppressor he is the person who hurt and changed and shaped um, so there's some interesting kind of uh, thoughts there just kind of randomly uh, tossed out any any comments before we continue Okay, let's keep going. I'm just, uh, sorry, Ken, please. Just a quick question. You know, I know we're not quite there yet, but I'm, I, I just, again, something that just came into my mind is now that we've got this backstory of, you know, sort of Magneto living through what we consider the quintessential evil of the 20th century, what does it mean that the first time we see him is with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Who's calling them evil? And if it's Magneto, which that part is rhetorical, right? But if it's Magneto, why is he leading into evil here? I mean, is that how he's seeing himself? And again, I know there's a big retcon, but I think we can have I, square the circle. Uh, 
if our readers know where this is, please let me know. Or if our listeners, I mean, there is a reference somewhere where he chooses the word evil to just kind of lean into how humans see mutants. Like if they see us as scary, let's be scary. Uh, but I don't remember where that exact reference is. Yeah, no. And I think that's the point I was getting to is that he's not leaning into evil as I'm evil. It's what you think I am. Right. And I think that builds on what he's seeing, what what's happening to him 30 years prior. Right. As you saw me as evil, this is, I know when you see me as evil, where this ends up. 30, right? years, I, 30 years prior or sliding time scale, 70 years prior, or in a few right, more years. Right, exactly. Years prior. <laughs> in universe time, 30 years prior. Right. <laughs> uh, let's turn the time over to Carrie for our next section of Magneto's history. Yeah, so um, uh, unlike Hussein, I have kind of... If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The uh, hodgepodge of issues that kind of hop through um, Magneto's history after he escapes from the camps and um, onto when he meets um, Charles Xavier. Um, so what I'd like to do is kind of talk through what happens. And as I was reading the issues, um, there were a couple of questions that that popped out to me. So I'm I'm going to put them out to the panel, um, you know, partway through, so so that we can talk about it. Because I'm I'm curious to hear what you think. So let's see. My first issue is uh, classic X Men twelve. This one came out in 1987, and it was written by Chris Claremont. Um, it's a two-part issue. And so the second half is called Fire in the Night and, and is about Magneto. Um, it opens with him asleep in a hotel room, and he's having nightmares. And, um, you know, this was the part of all the comics that I read that really got me. Um, they're brutal. And it's... It's less about specifically what happened, which I think is what we see in Testament. Um, here, the dreams are more about uh, the trauma that he carries. Um, you don't really see the specifics, but you see, uh, you see his fear. You see his protectiveness of Magda, that this is the one thing he can save. And he is both desperate and de determined to do so. Um, and, and the part that really got me was that uh, Magneto cries out in his sleep as he's dreaming about this. And we don't see Magneto vulnerable. He is not a vulnerable guy. You know, this is, this is not something he does. But um, 
at this point, he is entirely, um, entirely vulnerable and um, open in a way that, that you don't commonly see. He dreams about uh, the camp. He dreams about fleeing with Magda. And we see them start a, a new life um, in which there is hope. But uh, Max is cheated out of half of his pay when they move to the city for work. And um, he's, he's angry. You know, this was supposed to be the big restart. And once again, he's being treated as if he's less than. And he lashes out with his powers. Um, he levitates crowbar and, and um, threatens the guy and gets his money. Uh, when he returns home, he finds the inn where his wife and daughter were staying is on fire. Um, he saves Magda, but Anya is trapped upstairs and the fire's closing in. And he goes to save her, but is arrested for attacking the, um, the supervisor who tried to cheat him. And they won't let him go even to save his own daughter. And uh, she she burns to death. And uh, Max is grief stricken. He's furious and, you know, kind of can't blame him. Um, but he avenges her by killing them with his powers. And he turns to his wife and he says, you know, I I couldn't save her, but at least I can avenge her. And she calls him two things. She calls him a monster. And she calls him inhuman. And then she leaves him. And then we see Magneto wake up because he smells smoke. The whole reason he's remembering this is because he smells a fire. And there's a hotel room or a, a building across the street that is on fire. And coincidentally enough, there's a woman and a child stuck. And he has this moment, which you kind of it, it very much in, in line with what he, uh, you know, the, the philosophies that he espouses. He says, they're just humans. They would kill me if they had a chance. It's not my problem. But then he changes his mind and he saves them. And uh, I, I think there's something really interesting there. Uh, but I. I'd like to put a pin in that to talk about it in a little bit in comparison to what we see happen in the next issue, which is X-Men Unlimited number two. It's released in 1993 and written by Fabian Nicieza. And it's called Point Blank. And here we see what happened later. Uh, Magneto's attacking a pair of East German soldiers because they knocked down Magda's gravestone. And we don't see what happened to Magda, but we hear what, what Magneto knows. And he says, she always did say I would bring violence to her. When I learned that this was the last place she may have known hope, there we have hope again, where our ch twin children were born, I built a monument to her. And he confronts the soldiers and then everything shifts. And we see Dr. Gabrielle Holler giving a presentation about Magneto. Um, they talk about a lot of background here that 
that is presumed. Uh, they presume his name is Eric, Eric Magnus Lenscher. Um, he's, I believe it's pronounced Sinte Romani. Sinte is a Romani dialect, which was spoken in Germany um, and, and the belief, and, and also the surrounding countries. And the belief is that Magneto in, in particular is Polish, which uh, we know to be true. Uh, Holler believes that he learned about his powers at the camp. And it, there's some kind of contradictory material here where, you know, he he used his powers at the camp, but then he uses them again later with Magda and is surprised by it. Um, so it's kind of unclear exactly when it happened or when he realized that's what was happening, which might be two different things. Um, but she goes on to say that after Magda left him, Magneto went to Israel. And uh, what she says is to save his own soul, he chose to work with survivors of the camp and in turn, help them to regain theirs. And then we hopscotch around a bunch about uh, Magneto in the modern day, which is kind of outside the scope of our conversation here, but it's a really spectacular issue um, if you're interested in the character and I can't recommend it more highly. But so here's my question for the panel. We've got two memories with extremely different results. Uh, the first time Magneto has this traumatic, awful, awful dream, wakes up and saves someone who he firmly believes would not do the same for him. And his experience says, they're not going to care. Then the loss of Magda leads him to kill one of the soldiers for knocking over her gravestone. And he, he essentially says, this is eye for an eye. He says, uh, so now you know the pain of loss as sharply as do I. Not much difference between human pain and mutant pain, is there? And so one of the things that, that I was thinking about as I was reading these is, is how to rationalize those two things and what those contradictions say about Magneto as a person. And I wondered if any of you had, had these contradictory things in your issues or um, if it makes sense to you or if it feels like it's two different people. I read a lot of Magneto, certainly not all of his appearances. There does seem to be at least a trend of he will willfully commit murder if he feels it's justified or if he feels threatened or if he feels he's protecting someone vulnerable. Uh, he'll do it for revenge, for sure. If he sees someone who's done something horrible, he will wipe them out. Or he'll do it in retaliation, which is the example you get with like the Soviet submarine during the, the Uncanny X-Men 200. Uh, but he doesn't seem to be the mass killing type. He doesn't just go out and, and kill for fun. Later in that issue, the same soldier you referenced, Carrie, if I'm remembering, his brother who goes after Magneto in X-Men Unlimited number two realizes, oh, my brother would have killed Magneto. That's one of the reasons Magneto had to fight back in this way. So it's kind of an interesting thing because he's committing mass murder at times. Well, not mass, that's not fair for He's committing a lot of murders at times, but always from a place where he feels justified to do so. Right, or, and I think... It, oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to uh, say quick, or where he can justify to himself doing it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's strange in that... Um, 
he kills the soldier for knocking down a gravestone. At the point when he does it, there's been no, um, like, there's no real clear indication that this soldier has the ability to to do any harm to him. So it's an interesting dichotomy, and I think it says something about who Magneto is, that he's capable of mercy, but under what circumstances? At the risk of getting too much into the material for the trial, um, he is, I would say he's he's good at rationalizing an initial emotional reaction to do something and, and it, often explaining it as I either justified or I did what I had to do. Right. I thought it was interesting and it was making me think during this section about Testament and the number of times that he experiences loss, whether he acts one way or doesn't, and how many times he can experience that until it weighs down on him that like, I need to do what I think is right for me and my people in this situation. Because even when he does that, it, it sometimes turns and, and bites him that, that Magna flees from him in this display of power in, in the first section that we looked over through here. So I just, I think that, that that relationship with his actions and the consequences or his inactions and the consequences really has been gathering and weighing on him over time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, moving forward through his, uh, uh, through his history, uh, we next see a significant glimpse of his past in X-Men number 72. Uh, this one's from 1998 and written by Joe Kelly. Uh, but it, this issue is one of those where there's a bunch of different storylines all kind of glommed together. Um, but the one that we're con concerned about um, takes place in Jerusalem, and uh, Ambassador Holler is contacted by a Mossad agent who presents evidence that Magneto has faked his identity. And they're looking for the, the forger. Uh, but Magneto finds out that he's been discovered first and kills him saying, all that remains now is Magnus. Magnus, um, Will, and I'd like to talk more about the name change in a little bit. Um, and we've got a series of issues that kind of bounces around Magneto and Xavier's early friendship. And what you can argue is its inevitable end. Um, Uncanny X-Men 161, which is from 1982 and written by Claremont. Um, Professor X is being attacked by an alien consciousness, and so he's reliving his memories. And he remembers being introduced to Magnus, Magnus as a hospital volunteer, and uh, Gabrielle Holler is a patient who's catatonic after her experiences in Dachau. Um, and Magnus watches Xavier bring her back using his powers. And uh, the two strike up a friendship. And one of the things this issue says that I liked is Xavier discovers in Magnus a fascinating kindred spirit. However, he also comes to realize that in many ways, Magnus has been as deeply scarred by his experiences as Gabby. And then the issue flashes, flashes forward. And, and so to keep things in order, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, X-Men number 40 released 1995, also written by Missyeza, um, appears to take place with both mutants at the hospital 
And uh, Xavier's asking Magneto some questions about how he does what he does. He's built this wheelchair that should be impossible. And they kind of dance around each other. Each of them knows there's something up. Um, they're more than what they seem. And Magneto debates confiding in Charles. At this point, they're friends um, and equals. But he's conflicted and he's jealous. And he chides himself. He says, why would I deny Charles a chance at happiness just because I refuse to dream of a better world? And I think that says something about his, his conflicted nature. Um, and he, his, his desire to do the right thing, even if he's not entirely sure what that is. And then we've got, uh, my last issue is Uncanny X-Men 321, released in 1995 and written by Mark Wade. And uh, Magnus and Charles are debating. And uh, Magnus starts talking about his philosophy that, that um, homo superiors or mutants are going to have a, a rough go of it. And Charles responds with his usual optimism, which you could argue is warranted or not, and says, let's you and I make the rules then. If we have anything to say about it, homo superiors will fare just fine in this world. And then we see an interesting flip where Charles sees some of the bar patrons making fun of an amputee. And he gets mad and he starts a bar fight. And Magnus is urging restraint while Charles is waiting in and punching people. And so uh, Magnus comes to the rescue and says, and you dreamed about a world without violence, to which Charles replies, any dream worth having is a dream worth fighting for. And there may be a minor error here because the question is what name is he using? Uh, but regardless, it's a great quote. And you know, they're still very much on the same side, even if they're not exactly sure of how to go about it. And then we flip back to the final scene in Uncanny 161, which is their breakup. Um, Gabby's been kidnapped by Hydra and um, Magnus tears one of their transports apart and kills some of them. Charles is not thrilled. Um, they rescue Gabby and then they part ways because they don't agree about how each of them went about it. And Magneto says, you're far too trusting, Charles. You have faith in the essential goodness of man. And in time, you'll learn what I've learned, that even those you love will turn from you in horror when they discover what you truly are. Mutants will not go meekly to the gas chambers, will fight. And it, that's his philosophy in a nutshell. And, you know, I, I've got to be honest, these were tough issues to read. Um, it's just one loss after another. And I think it's almost impossible not to empathize with him a little after seeing what he's been through um, and seeing him struggle with who he is. Um, seeing him chide himself, he gives himself a hard time for the fact that his trauma has gotten to him. And one of the things that I think is, is important about this, session, this section is that this is where he changes his name. 
not just that he goes by Magneto, but he changes his mortal name as well. And there are repeated references to the idea that knowing his true name is the key to stopping him. Gabrielle Holler says it. Magneto says it. Magneto's willing to kill to, to hide it. So, uh, but he also says he changed his name because the authorities were following him. And he was willing to deny who he was and everything that his family died for in order to keep looking for Magda. And so I'm, I was left after reading all of these issues, trying to decide what I think Magnus is trying to hide from when he changes his name. Is it from the authorities? Is it from his past or himself? I was curious to know what you think. Let me turn it to the panel first. I uh, carry not specifically to the question of, of what he's trying to hide from, but when you were talking about everything that he's lost, I was thinking about Colossus, Pietro Rasputin, and and there's this period in the late 80s, early 90s, where he just is like, it's two years of dump on Colossus, right? Like he loses his parents, he loses his sister, Kitty breaks up with him like four times. It's 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 terrible. Like I, I mean, I, I'm joking about it, but I, I feel like, Magnus, Abby, I need to joke about Colossus for a second. Uh, you know, that, and at the end of that arc, Colossus leaves the Xavier School and joins Magneto. And the, I think at that time they were called the Acolytes, were his group, um, uh, Magneto's group. And, and, you know, you think, well, this is two years of Colossus living through this, as opposed to, you know, however many decades Max, Eric, Magnus, Magneto has been living through this. And just when you're putting that in context, it just helped me understand, again, add a little bit more depth to Magneto's character. Uh, because you can sympathize with Colossus's loss because you're seeing it unfold in real time. With Magneto, we're always looking back and, and finding out about it. I think we have a long history of, of real life people who have suffered extraordinary trauma, who leave that trauma behind and change their name and have a fresh start, right? Also, he committed criminal acts. He killed people when Anya and died and Magda ran. Uh, he also likely killed some people during the war or during his escape. So there, there's a, this kind of chance at a fresh start. And at least at that point, we see him kind of trying to help by giving back and living quietly. And so there's that key moment when he flies off with the Nazi gold that he liberates from Baron Strucker, crushes Strucker's hand and says, you know, fuck this, I'm going to I'm going to change. And then everything's different after that. It's that key moment uh, when the Nazi comes back, kidnaps Gabrielle, who's the war victim. And then uh, he, he fights back and, and makes that change. Uh, he also his name is Eric, which they later reveal is his uncle's name, and his uncle's the one who who wanted to fight back. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, comparison in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I always feel like his name changes are like another. They're all stepping stones to becoming Magneto. He's Max. He's young. He's scared. You know, goes through everything that he does, and then he's Eric, and he. Wants a life with Magda and Anya, and and when that doesn't work, he takes on the next identity, and it just to me it seems like stepping stones. And I do think it's important that he takes his uncle's name, and he was he was the one who was fighting 
um, and also protecting young Max because he wanted to keep him out of the fight. He wanted him to live through the war too. And his his name changes aren't the only times when he um, sheds an identity too. The um, the trial of Magneto or one of them uh, closed with uh, um, with the uh, the, the jury deciding that the old Magneto was dead and that this was a new person. I think, Carrie, one of the things that, that your retelling of the stories also highlights is, and you, you asked this question a little bit earlier, uh, about how he deals with innocence. And I think it's a question of proportionality, disproportionality, right? I, I think about that moment in, in Testament where Max's uncle, Eric, says to him, every time we hurt one of them, they hurt a hundred of us, right? And it feels like, okay, post-war, Max is just trying to get his fair wages and he's just fighting with his supervisor to get that money and it results in the death of his daughter, right? So he's learning this disproportionality, right? It's like, you've got to kill them for that side. I think you said eye for an eye, but that's not quite it, right? Because that, that, that East German soldier just knocked over Magda's tombstone grave marker but it's like but this is the beginning of something else so you've got to stop it with maximum force the same thing when he's trying to save gabby heller is you stop hydra with maximum force you don't give them the opportunity to grow their second head right and to come back it's you know you make sure that you are the 800 pound gorilla in the room and don't give anybody the opportunity to attack you back disproportionately and i feel like that's also weighing on his mind it's like do you let 10 people die to save a hundred or do you just kill the hundred right off the bat and save your hundred? You know, and I think that's always a calculus he's, he's managing. The loss of Anya alone is just startling. And the fact that he never sees Magda again is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, I want to note really quickly, and this is where we can get it a little lighter. Magda, for years, we believe she ran off to Mount Wondegore and gave birth to the twins. Uh, but that's been retconned that Scarlet Witch and Pietro are not his twins. So what happened to her and what happened to those twins? And is Bova the cow woman the only person who knows? <laughs> I feel like we have a major story here. We also, there's a beautiful and really heartbreaking scene during Cullen Bunn's Magneto series in which the Red Skull gets uh, Xavier's telepathic brain and he taunts Magneto with visions of Anya dying and gives him kind of an alternate look of what if Anya had jumped from the fire? She would have died anyway. Uh, there's this there's this really awful uh, interchange. I'll talk more about Magneto and Red Skull another time. That's a, that's a, a bizarre combination. Um, but we see the moment when the Nazi comes back as the moment when, Nath when, when Magneto changes. It's almost as if the war's not over. It's like he thought we could focus on healing until Strucker's there, Hydra's forming, things are coming back and he can't hold it back anymore. So let's use that transition to uh, go over to Noel, who's going to explore some of uh, Magneto's early vigilante or slash villain days in quotes. Yes. So he goes from taking out that Hydra and stealing their gold to hunting down Nazis who have fled to South America to escape um, the Nuremberg trials and just to escape from their crimes. Um, he's working with Mossad in Israel and possibly the CIA or some other maybe United States or British um, intelligence services. And he discovers, it's not exactly specified where 
in South America, but somewhere in South America, he finds a Nazi fortification that's staffed with soldiers. Um, he uses his powers, busts it in, they're shooting at him. Of course, he just deflects the bullets and he sees the leader of this fortification and he is Hans Richter of the Waffen SS, I guess Waffen, I don't know. Um, and Magnetos calls him by name and says, you missed your trial in Nuremberg, so I'm here to correct that. And Richter tries to explain away or justify and says he was just a soldier. And Magneto basically tells him to cut the shit. Um, and it looks like at that moment, he is going to kill Richter on the spot, but he's actually planning to take him to the courts in Israel instead. Um, so we don't see him just kind of bringing his own justice to this. He's, he wants him to go to trial. And Richter makes a comment that, well, that's not going to be a fair trial. And so Magneto says, it's going to be more fair than what the people you murdered got. Um, and at this time, Magneto had used his powers to fight, break into the fortification, fight off some tanks, fight off the bullets, and he starts getting some headaches from uh, using his powers so much. Um, and he finds more files in Richter's office to hunt down more Nazis. And he makes his way to Rio de Janeiro, where he meets a woman. It looks like he's at like a beach resort or something, but he's in a suit, so he's not really relaxing. Um, and he meets this woman named Isabel. They hit it off, and they're in his room that night. And she says that he's super tense, so she wants to give him a massage and relax him. But two men break in and murder her right in front of him. And he's like, what is happening? Who are you? And it turns out these are two intelligence officers who are upset with Magneto because Richter was actually one of their double agents. And so they're like, you went off and did this whole thing without talking to us and you've messed up our plan. So they're planning to kill him for that. And Magneto's furious at this. He's like, you are collaborating with Nazi war criminals. And so he kills them before they can kill him. And the end of the comic has the line, the dream dies and the nightmare is born. And so I just took that as, you know, he has tried to work with humans. He's trying to get justice in the world, and he was let down. Um, from there, in Magneto number one, so the first issue I did was classic X-Men 19. This is Magneto number one. He travels to New York and goes to Brooklyn, where there's a lot of mutants living secretly, just trying to pass as human, keep their powers under wraps, and he has seen other He's seen heroes, costumed heroes, make their appearance in the world um, and decides that he should join those ranks. And he goes to a mutant named Cassandra Michaels, who creates his famous red and purple suit. And then the two of them have dinner. He says he's smitten with her, but she also seems really young. So that's kind of a weird element of the story. Um, and as they're going down the street, this like zombie-like King Kong ape busts out and starts rampaging around and Magneto takes it pretty much in stride and starts telling Cassandra well all of you are hiding here and you need to reveal yourselves and it's these repressed mutants who've created this monster 
And so he defeats it. And for a moment, he's really interested in the idea of being thought of as a superhero because he's got a suit on now. He's saving the city from this thing. But Cassandra turns down an offer to join him. And he does not take that very well. Uh, he tells her that he's not used to people talking to him that way. And she says, uh, you should get some thicker skin or you're not going to be anybody's hero at all. So very important line from her. In X Factor 243, we learned that a woman named Suzanne, uh, she's married and has an affair with Magneto and has a daughter, Lorna Dane, later Polaris. And this issue is Lorna learning her real parentage. So she has this old photograph. She's in um, X Factor and she's talking to Longshot. She has this old Polaroid of her parents. He touches it and gets like a flash of her parents' history because they had died in a plane crash. And she knows that there's some mystery around it, but she doesn't know why and she doesn't have any memory. So Longshot and Monet sit with Polaris and reveal to her the events of her childhood. So she had been in a plane with her parents and they were in the middle of a fight over the affair with Suzanne, Lorna's mom and Magneto. And Lorna is upset. She doesn't want them to be fighting. So she tries to interrupt them. She basically just gets yelled at and she green light starts emanating from her and the plane is torn apart. She, she survives, but both of her parents are killed in the plane crash. And Magneto finds her because he it's explained that he felt the electromagnetic energy from her powers emerging and came to kind of rescue her, but he doesn't take her in. He has Mastermind wipe her memory and he says, you're not ready for your powers and you need a normal life. So she doesn't get to learn about her powers. She doesn't really deal with the trauma of her parents' death. And she doesn't know who her real father is. Um, so one of Magneto's many failings as a parent is just leaving her kind of abandoned and stuck with this trauma that she's unable to process for a really long time. And in Generation X number 10, this one's kind of a, doesn't really, it's kind of an oddball story, but um, Sean Cassidy Banshee is working for Interpol and he is trying to track down this serial killer in Europe. So all these women have been uh, showing up murdered and he's convinced they're, they're connected. Nobody else believes him, they think he's crazy. Um, it turns out it's uh, Arkady Rosevich Omega Red who's on a killing spree and Magneto is working behind the scenes to help Cassidy catch Omega Red. So he shows up, he's been like feeding him information and tells Cassidy that if he goes back to his own home, Cassidy Keep in Ireland, he's gonna find the killer. And Magneto explains that he wants the killer taken care of to end the murder spree and avoid any human mutant conflict. He doesn't want humans to learn that it's a mutant carrying out all these murders. Um, and we all know how the media reacts to dead white women. So, I mean, that's a fair um, plan. So Cassidy follows Magneto's lead. He catches Omega Red and turns it back over to Interpol, which then leads to him uh, going through the USSR's 
super soldier plan. So didn't work out very great in the end. Um, the last issue I have is Marvel Fanfare number 33. And this one has kind of a crazy backstory. Chad, you can correct me if I simplify this and get something super wrong. Um, but I had to do like a lot of clicking through to find out who people were and what they're doing. Um, short version is there's this society on another planet that doesn't believe in violence, not even in self-defense. Um, and one person from this planet named Durgan was exiled because he knows that there's this threat coming and he wants to find a way to fight back. He's like, I think it's okay that we act in self-defense. So he gets exiled and starts studying super powered beings in order to try and create some sort of weapon or plan to be able to save his society and his planet. And he creates, I guess it's an android called the Chief Examiner that he sends to Earth to study heroes. And there's a reason for this, but the Chief Examiner goes rogue and wants to take over the Earth. Um, and he wants Magneto's powers to do so. Because Magneto by this time is kind of making a name for himself. And Chief Examiner feels like this, this guy's powers are going to be what does it. And at this point, Magneto is living on an island that he raised from the ocean floor in the Bermuda Triangle. And actually getting ready to leave with the X-Men to stand in for Charles Xavier, who's been dangerously injured. Um, and importantly, he's dating a human named Lee Forrester. So kind of odd for Magneto to be a human. Um, but the chief examiner attacks the X-Men and Magneto. Um, Magneto's mind gets separated from his body. He meets Durgan, who tells the story about trying to save his people. And ultimately, of course, they're between the X-Men, Rogue, and Magneto, they're able to defeat this. Um, but Magneto gives an interesting warning to Durgan against using violence to achieve goals. And he kind of reflects on this uh, to the X-Men after the events. I had to get this from an online issue summary, so this may not be a direct quote, but it says, consider though, has the capacity for violence really done humanity that much good? Mahatma Gandhi thought of a better way, resistance to evil, to oppression without resorting to violence. The courage to take blows, but never return them, Christ's message too. Durgan's race embodies that noble ideal, yet Durgan in his zeal to save them may in the process cost them what they hold most dear. Will his victory be worth the price? Um, and that's the end of my section. And I thought it was a really interesting note to end on, given what Magneto will do from here, that he's recognizing that violence doesn't always lead to the solution that you want. And so it kind of goes back to what Carrie said. There's just this dissonance in what he's saying versus what he will continue to go on to do um, that I thought was really interesting. So. The Lots of piece, random stories together. Yeah, the key piece to that Magneto, that Marvel fanfare story is the raising of the island, the, uh, the the island M, which becomes his base for the Brotherhood later on, because we're kind of seeing him seclude and build up power is kind of this, this section you're going through. Uh, there also seems to be an illusion that he went to mate with this woman, uh, Susan, uh, in order to produce a child that would have strong genetics. Did you get that vibe from that X-Factor story, which is kind of an interesting thing too. Uh, the, I don't think we've ever seen really referenced otherwise. 
Yeah, I did. And um, when Polaris is learning about this whole, the truth of her story, um, there's kind of this lie, someone's trying to protect her from the truth. And they use the line of Magneto saying, oh, if I can't be with you, Suzanne, nobody, nobody can. And Polaris is like, that is not true because Magneto doesn't care about anyone but himself, at least at that time in his life. Um, so yeah, I kind of got the, I don't really think he was swept up with Suzanne very much. Any comments from the panel on this section? Yeah, I, I think that whole bit with Polaris, and I have to admit for posterity, she's one of my favorites. Um, I just adore her. And the the whole story with Polaris is weird. You know, given what Magneto thinks about, about mutant superiority and that kind of thing, the fact that he, when he discovers that his daughter is a powerful mutant, wipes her memory of it and sends her to live with humans is an odd choice. Um and and part of me wonders if if he is trying to protect her while she grows. Um, I think you can make that argument. But um, you know, again, it's one of those things where where he's you think you know what he's going to do, and then he does something completely different. Yeah, it was one where I kind of felt like this is way more of a Professor Xavier move than a Magneto move wiping someone's memory because it's inconvenient at the time. Sadly, yes. <laughs> and having a child and then forgetting about them. <laughs> That's the X-Men franchise is full of terrible fathers. Uh, we also just want to note, we're taking a bunch of stories by a bunch of different people in different time periods and trying to stack them in chronological order. So obviously there's more to the story. There's more we don't know. Uh, we're just kind of putting all these pieces together and they can always be told from various perspectives uh, as well. Uh, so th then we get this recent revelation where everything gets kind of knocked over on its head in the Hickman era. Oh, which can I say something real quick? Yeah, 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 please. Uh, I, I just wanted to comment just about the, the stories from Noel's section of how they seemed to be testing limits and or ranges of who this person he was becoming, right? So you find the new name of Magneto. And I, I was reading through that classic X-Men story. He almost like softly says it to himself, Magneto, you know, like that has a ring to it. Uh, he's, he's got the, the costume and testing the limits of could I be superhero or am I destined to be this evil? I have a daughter, but am I really allowed or able to give her a life that I, I want to or, or need to murder when it's just or in the right time is one thing versus what Omega Red is doing is another thing. And just interesting elements about all these stories and how they touch on points of his character and, and the lengths that he will go to or, or where he'll shy away from that ideology or that identity. His decision with Polaris is especially interesting because he's given the opportunity right then to have somebody uh important under um under his complete powers complete mm. control and basically control everything in his life which is an opportunity he doesn't turn down often um he will um he will see, um, seize control of plenty of other people's lives um, but i think this is the, a one of the few people he at this point actually cares about 
um, and realizes just how terrible that this is that him having control over her would be um, for her. There's uh, there's comments made, and we'll talk more about this in our in our trial tomorrow. But there's comments made from Moira McTaggart uh, in um, in I believe it's uh, uh, X Men Volume Two, kind of one, two, and three, where <laughs> Magneto gets turned into a baby, and she messes with his gene, uh, his genetics a little bit, and she theorizes that Magneto's powers, as they escalate, start to become uh, make him more unhinged. Basically, they make him more megalomaniacal. He sees the world differently. And, and it kind of helps in a way fill in the blank of how we have this man who's very compassionate at times, who's fighting for the greater good, but there are times when he's just downright messianic or megalomaniacal as well. Uh, so this is an era, Noel, that you're exploring where his powers are really kicking in for the first time. He's using them to fucking raise an island off the ocean floor, right? Uh, he's becoming more and more impressive. And we're getting into an era where we're gonna, Tristan's going to cover some of his more problematic stuff with the, uh, with the Brotherhood and Toad in particular, where you start to see him see the world very differently. And that could explain this relationship with Polaris a little bit. He also, his other daughter, he lost very tragically. There could be something going on in his psyche where he does not see himself fit to raise a kid, or even as he sees himself as not someone who should raise a child because he means too much to the mutant race. Otherwise, he's the one that's going to save them, right? He's the savior. He can't be burdened with a kid. So there could be a number of different things factoring into that decision. Uh, let's turn the time over to Justin. We have these recent revelations in the Hawksbox era by Jonathan Hickman, which change everything from Magneto right from the beginning based on some really confusing continuity. Uh, Justin, do you want to take over? Sure, absolutely. Chad, you had said something early on about how Magneto was fighting for the right to live throughout some of that early early history. And I, I see this section as planning for the right to a future, right? So to begin talking about Magneto in the Krakoan era, we have to start with 2019's event, House of X and Powers of 10, and the retcon machine that walks like a woman, Moira McTaggart. We, the reader, have just discovered in House of X number two that Moira McTaggart, this human science lady, has actually been a mutant all along. She has the power of reincarnation, living her life till the end, and then going back to start again at the beginning, keeping the information and experience gained. She's lived lifetimes of trial, error, and tragedy, siding with Xavier, Magneto, Apocalypse, and more. With each life, the mutants always lose. Every one of them dies. Magneto's greatest fear and driving force. In this life, her potential final life, she's decided to try and bring together the two sides of mutantdom to sit at the same table. Powers of 10 number two starts with a quote from Magneto. There is a chasm between you and I, Charles, a gap that cannot be crossed. With each passing day, I fear it never will be. This underscores the differing philosophical ideologies at the top, the way these two men want to lead their people forward, opposite halves to the same coin of mutant-human relations. In the issue, Charles and Moira visit Magneto on Island M in the Bermuda Triangle. Magneto said to Xavier that he does not believe there's a place in this world for each of their dreams, as Charles counters that they've both been wrong. Our dreams are fleeting and too small for the coming days. Moira revealed to Magneto that she was a mutant who had lived many previous lives. Using his telepathy, Charles shared memories of Moira's lives into Magneto's brain. He saw visions of other lives he had lived where mutants had been killed by humans and robots in various genocides. 
the very result he tirelessly tries to prevent. Magneto, still hesitant, agrees to work with Charles and Moira in building a sanctuary for mutants on Earth, but he promised to test Charles every step of the way, constantly holding him accountable. This meeting, Moira's status as a mutant, they're both retcons. It's interesting to think about the amount of continuity that happens after this meeting and how that might influence our reading of it, the amount of information that he knows. By looking into these other timelines that he sees, Magneto now has an awareness of the possibility of many of the world's worst threats, including Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Sentinels, Nimrod, maybe other cosmic things like the Celestials, Eternals, even more smaller Earthbound threats like the Legacy Virus and Weapon Plus. It's difficult to keep in mind how much this must have shaped him and how much of this subsequent continuity is Magneto testing Charles and the X-Men or intentional plots between the three of them as they build Krakoa. Retcons. Powers of 10, issue six. Moira's journal entry, number 22, regarding Magneto. Charles and I have successfully recruited Magneto. As it is with every meeting of ours, I am stunned at the casual arrogance of this man. If Charles is a rock that I have to wear down over decades, then Eric is something harder and less permeable. With him, loyalty is something that must be constantly earned. He allows for no deviation of intent, no wavering of belief. The idea that there will be that there will not be setbacks and that his constant anger will remain tampered down is a fool's dream. I only hope that our consistency of vision and commitment to mutantdom will outlast his rage. One positive thing of note, I have successfully imprinted the idea of a stronghold in his mind. Of course, it has always been there, but seeing so many lives where an island, a world, or some other celestial body functions as a safe haven for mutants has left an indelible mark. In Powers of Ten, number four, we see Xavier Magneto approaching Mr. Sinister, the evil geneticist. They want him to start building a database of mutant DNA, all mutant DNA. He agrees to begin working, although Xavier removes the memories of the reasons why he's creating this database until a point in the future when Xavier tells him to remember. Again, it's interesting to consider the reasons why these two would recruit someone like Sinister with an awareness of what he's done in Moira's other lives and what he's done in the 616 continuity that they know. What need brought them to this point and the potential ramifications with this decision, a decision that Moira, who's supplying this information, did not support? The last two quotes from Powers of Ten, number six, both journal entries from Moira. I have underestimated Xavier's infatuation with the possibilities of what can be accomplished with mutant genetic material without my knowledge. And against my advice, both Charles and Magneto have traveled to Bar Sinister and recruited Sinister to our cause. What is it this, what is this thing that men do where they think they can shape the world to their liking and bend others to whatever they will? This is folly. And if the, what they told me is true regarding their meeting with him, he has produced his first chimera decades early, and it is sinister himself. Finally, her 52nd entry, we have lost Magneto. I had hoped, given the opportunity to make him a better man, instead, all we have made is an enemy. I'm just as bad as they are, if not worse. Interesting to just note how this influences everything that we've read, everything that we then see go forward, and the amount of change that this signals, right? So we see over the course of three issues from the Powers of Ten series, these chance encounters, 
but these happen decades earlier and have been in his mind, guiding his actions, influencing his decisions that entire time, unaware to us. <laughs> Brilliant, Justin. Uh, Justin used to be an attorney, everyone. <laughs> uh, th there's really interesting things. Hickman clearly considered all of this, which is great. We get these little passing mentions in the journal entries that kind of fill in a little bit of the blanks, but you wonder how much Magneto knew. I mean, if we're summarizing, summarizing everything we've said in just a few sentences, we see happy childhood, tragic upbringing, like unspeakable tragedy, tries a new life, loses everything, tries a new life, loses everything, tries to commit to making big change, then his powers kick in, and then we see this whole different person. And that's the point in which Moira and Charles come up to him, right? Moira knows who he is, that she chose her timing, she knows what she's doing, and he's been in on this from the beginning. And then we see the dissolving of his relationship with Xavier after that. And they spend these years fighting each other, even though they were planning things from the beginning. I know I'm summarizing a lot of stuff altogether, but it's really, really fascinating when you put all of this back together, uh, these pieces and the way the puzzle fits. It's it's really, really curious. I, there's so much I want to know. Yeah, there's, there's so much to dive in as like, how does this influence this? Or where does this actually take place? Or, or when does this affect this? Or who knows what at what time? Records. Uh, what do you guys think? Any any thoughts about this stuff with uh, Huxpox and how it changes our understanding? I mean, I'll go a little bit further. I I think that this conversation is is kind of a meeting point of their two dreams. You know, where a little bit of cross examination of the other side happens at at times, right? Uh, neither of them produce a, a result that is in their favor. Both of them seemingly change their ways in in the end result. When Krakoa is formed, Magneto is no longer threatening destruction and death. He's being a lot more subtle. He's being a lot more plotting and planning. Uh, X-Men number four by Hickman as well. They go to a diplomatic summit and, and flex their powers of government rather than what would be their powers of mutantdom. And I think that... Charles's embrace of not necessarily kill the humans, but a, a rationalization of whether or not peaceful coexistence can ever happen and, and finding ways that their ideologies now are overlapping to create this new way forward. It's It's been a while since I've read these issues, but I remember um, when I read them previously, one of the things that got me, and this may be tinged by my personal um, dislike of Mora, but um, how would things have gone if she hadn't been there? Because we do see, you know, a history of, um, you know, Charles and um, Magnus working together or at least finding some common ground. Um, but I'm not sure since you've read it more recently, did you get the sense that she kind of made things worse? Um, because I remember, I remember feeling that way. I think the only way we know what would have happened is we go back to Moira's first life when she didn't yeah. know she was a mutant in the first place. And there was no Moira there to influence events. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider. Yeah. I just don't like her though. I admit it. <laughs> Right. In several of her subsequent lives, she does approach Charles in different ways. So we don't know, 
you know, essentially editorial is telling us that everything that we've read previously still is the same timeline. It all is, they've just known this all along, which sometimes makes me feel questionable, but you know, it, it's just part of I, large changes. Yeah. I guess, I guess my thing is I feel like she's going in the wrong direction. Well, also having read two years after House of X and Powers of Ten, uh, Moira's a bad lady. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. Also, Moira seems to uh, love Charles and respect Magneto, but she—I'm sorry—and respect Apocalypse, but she kind of tolerates Magneto. It's—it's it's almost like she doesn't like him very much, but she realizes he's necessary, which right. is an interesting thing to consider as well. But we'll do the trial of Moira McTaggart another time. In Fabian Nicieza's X-Men Forever, in Manchester, England, Magneto found the misfit Mortimer Toynbee, saving him from mob violence. Mortimer took the name Toad and began dressing like a court jester, and he followed Magneto around constantly, desperate for his attention. Magneto grew annoyed and constantly called Toad names and sometimes began abusing him. Magneto soon recruited Mastermind as well, a powerful mutant illusionist. Aboard his floating fortress asteroid M, Magneto made an alliance with the mutant teleporter Astra, who acquired alien technology for him to use, though she eventually left him in disgust. These stories are recounted in X-Men Volume 2, Numbers Minus 1 and 86, Uncanny X-Men Number 367, and X-Men Forever Number 4. Astra would later famously clone Magneto, creating the character Joseph. In X-Men number four in a flashback, we see the first time Magneto went to Transia, where he found a pair of mutant twins, Pietro and Wanda Maximoff, there being attacked by a mob of humans who feared the twins for their superpowers. Wanda could cast chaos hexes, while Pietro had super speed. They took the names Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch after Magneto recruited them, and he regularly reminded them that they were loyal to him and needed to call him master, though he did have rare moments of softness with them, as Wanda in particular reminded him of Magda, and as we know for years, these were believed to be his children. This this flashback was followed up many times in the Avengers comics, and really prominently in Avengers Origins, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch number one by Sean McKeever. Magneto formed the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, a team embracing the word evil the way that humans saw them. He made the members of his team call him master as he led them in promoting mutant causes through any means necessary while countering Xavier's new team of X-Men. In Marvel Comics Presents number, Volume 2, Number 3, Magneto meets the character Whisper, a mutant who has gathered information and intelligence Uh, This is a story written by David Von Allman. Magneto has the chance to use this intelligence to further his cause, but refuses to work with Whisper after learning he was a former Nazi. He kills Whisper. In Colin Bunn's Magneto series, we see multiple flashbacks. One prominent one shows Magneto approaching Charles Xavier at the X-Mansion, concerned about the development of Cerebro, a computer which could track mutants and Magneto worried that it might eventually be used by the government against mutants, a concern which proved to be valid years later. I'm just gonna throw in a couple of points here at the end, uh, things that we didn't cover necessarily in the trial. In Uncanny X-Men number 304, Scott Liddell posits in a caption box that after leaving the concentration camp, Magneto had hepatitis, which resulted in his powers not developing until much later when Anya died. 
In this same issue, we also see Magneto thinking to himself that when Anya died, that is when his old life as Max Eisenhardt or Eric Lencher ended and his new life as Magneto began. In the weirdly titled X-Men Prelude to Schism number two, Paul Jenkins offers a powerful flashback story about Magneto's early family. His relationship with his father is focused on, and we see more of Magneto's father's history in World War I emphasized here. In this issue, we also get two amazing insights into Magneto's first battle with the X-Men from X-Men number one. When he first sees the X-Men, he mutters to himself, children, Charles? Second, he admits to himself that he's tired of being bullied and that he enjoyed fighting the X-Men, thinking of them, frankly, as cannon fodder. There are likely other key moments uh, from Magneto's history that we didn't cover here. And listeners, feel free to send in anything that we might have missed. Um, I'm going to toss this out. It's not part of our conversation, but it's really interesting. Magneto has a really complicated relationship with the Red Skull that's never been really emphasized in X-Men comics. In 1990, in Mark Grenwald's uh, Captain America number 367, he goes after the Red Skull and he traps him in an elevator shaft and buries him alive, basically, and says, I'm going to leave you here to die because you're a Nazi. And the Red Skull later gets Professor X's brain, right, and becomes this telepath who forms concentration camps on the ruined island of Genosha. And he goes after Magneto and makes him a captive uh, and taunts him with mental images. Magneto later literally beats Red Skull to death, which, uh, which then unleashes the Red Onslaught, which is the big villain behind the Axis event, if you guys remember. And then most fascinating, and the way, the way this is presented, during Hydra's takeover of the United States, uh, during the Secret Empire storyline, when we had that dark version of Captain America running around, Captain America goes to the Magneto and says, I want you to stay off the playing field, leave us all alone. And in order to prove to you that you can be, that you can trust I'm going to be loyal, he gives him the Red Skull's head in a box. And Magneto's like, yep, I'll stay off, I'll stay out of it then. So there's there's some really interesting versions of Magneto in non-X-Men stories where we see this relationship of, uh, relationship of him with the Nazis moving on, because the Red Skull's the archetype of that in the modern comics. Uh, where where sometimes he is hands-on and sometimes he is hands-off. And, and there's a, a lot of really interesting dueling philosophies here. Uh, as we're wrapping up, let's hear from everybody really quickly. Where can people find you online? What is one thing that stood out to you today that's going to stick with you tonight a little bit? And then we're going to reconvene. Uh, Carrie won't be with us tomorrow, but we have Anthony Oliveira joining us, and we get to put Magneto on trial uh, in the format of our traditional trial episodes in our follow-up episode to this tomorrow, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, today had a lot of heavy, heartfelt content. I hope you guys are all in an okay space. Please take care of yourselves, both those on the panel and those who might be uh, listening. So let's go in the same order as earlier. Where can people find you and uh, and what's something that might stick with you today? Let's have Noel go first. Yeah, so my podcast is X-Men Unraveled. Welcome to that most places. Um, and I am at X-Men Unraveled on Instagram and Twitter um, or at L Unraveled on Twitter at E-L-L-E Unraveled. Um, and I think what going to stick with me right now is something that Tristan mentioned in the conversation about Magneto's power and his mental stability. It's very reminiscent of things that we um, talked about, about the Scarlet Witch, um, a lot of female characters that happens to come up a lot. And so um, that was something I've kind of overlooked in reading about Magneto, that they brought that into his character as well. 
I don't remember who went next. Uh, let's have Tristan go next. You can find me online on Twitter on the Hell site at, at Tristan Palmgren, um, or you can find um, you can find me and contact me on my website as well. T uh, r i s t a n p a l m g r e n dot com. Um, what is what I'm going to be thinking about for a while is the difficulty of mapping out. Um, the X Men as a power fantasy on <laughs> onto um, onto onto, uh, onto yeah understanding um, understanding oppressed peoples in in the real world and and um, all of the different ways in in which that can get uh, in which that can get messy. I laughed too soon. I thought you were going to say just the crazy X Men continuity. <laughs> well, that that is also going to stick with me. But that is something I also want to discuss uh, during the trial: um, is how to uh, how we were how we were going to approach uh, continuity and retcons. Uh, Carrie. Uh, so you can find me online at CarrieHarrisBooks.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter a lot when I'm trying to avoid writing my words. And I'm at C A R R H A R R. Um, and you know, I went into this knowing that that uh, Magneto was a complicated character, um, definitely a shade of gray character. Um, but I hadn't really put some thought into how. Um, and just seeing all of the themes of of loss and then uh, the hope that you could build something better and how they, he, he kind of vacillates between the two um, depending on where you are in his story. And that's just something really, really intriguing um, that I'm going to carry with me. Uh, carry, carry. <laughs> and, uh, and then Hussein, please. Yeah, uh, so you can find me on Twitter uh, at IslamoYankee, I-S-L-A-M-O-Y-A-N-K-E-E, -E, and on the webs at HusseinRashid.com. And the thing I'm walking away with is this whole question of unaddressed trauma and power across generations, because I think, as we've been talking about, I'm going to come back to Carrie's great term because I just love it, Dagnito. Uh, you know, Polaris and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and even Toad to a certain extent, how that gets transmitted down. I'm just really thinking about, well, really, what if Magneto had gotten therapy, uh, it, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, comic time. So, and then Justin, you can find me and my wife Alicia talking about X Men comics every Friday, usually at. T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E. -E. That's ex-wife, like X-Men, not former wife. She likes to underscore that every time we go on a guest show. But the thing that's going to stick with me the most is the complexity of this man's story, how that all adds up, how that all weighs on you and, and shows itself throughout the years of his life. But also some of the things that Hussein had said uh, of him and Xavier operating on a spectrum of potential and, and the different influences that create the people that we see before us and, and the ideas of natural good or evil. Uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. 
I, uh, I am Chad. You can find me on Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram and Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. Uh, I'm pretty easy to chat with. Find me anytime. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on most hosting platforms. Give an episode a listen. If you haven't, we're having a lot of fun. This was uh, a really powerful discussion. And I think the thing that's going to hit me most is honestly just the fact that we have these six talented, educated, uh, passionate people who can have this long conversation about one character and still carry so much weight away from it. I'm so grateful to each of you for your time and your talents, both in your preparation and in sharing your thoughts and giving up a Saturday afternoon to be here nerding out with me. Uh, I, I feel esteemly honored to have each of you here and I'm a huge fan of each of you. So thank you, thank you for the generosity of your time. Um, I will see you guys back here tomorrow here on the panel when Anthony's with us uh, for the trial part. And uh, we'll see the rest of you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Grey Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.